The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Harnessing the Power of Immunotherapy in Resectable Melanoma Guidance for Delivering Effective Adjuvant and Neoadjuvant Strategies. Access the entire activity and complete the post test at peerview.com forward slash NHA 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. All right. Welcome, everyone. My name is uh, Jennifer Wargram from the University of Texas MD Anderson Cancer Center, and uh, it's my great honor to chair this session today on Harnessing the Power of Immunotherapy and Resectable Melanoma, Guidance for Delivering Effective Adjuvant and Neoadjuvant Strategies. And tonight's panelists will include myself, as well as uh, Dr. Charlotte Arian and Dr. Uh, Dr. Michael Postow from uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And so why are we here today? And so I think, uh, what are the unmet medical needs in resectable melanoma? And we know uh, from the 2018 U.S. Oncology Network Electronic Health Record Database with 325 patients with stage 3 melanoma, that most of these patients, 72% of them actually received a watch and wait approach regardless of their substage. So I think there is an opportunity here uh, to really reflect and say who should be getting adjuvant and neoadjuvant immunotherapy. Also, with regard to treatment patterns from the National Cancer Database, with uh, over 8,000 patients with stage 3 melanoma, only 28% of patients received immunotherapy after surgery. And so so I think, uh, you know, do those numbers need to change a bit? And we'll discuss that today. And so our goals for this evening are first to help you grasp the current evidence and recommendations surrounding the use of adjuvant and neoadjuvant immunotherapy in the melanoma setting. Uh, Secondly, to equip you with the skills you need to integrate adjuvant and neoadjuvant immunotherapy into treatment plans for patients with resectable melanoma. And thirdly, to augment your ability to mitigate immune-related adverse events when working collaborative uh, in these surgical settings. And so uh, the first part of this presentation, we uh, have some case-based presentations followed by didactics and then a lot of interactive question and answer. Our first uh, session here, uh, part of this is going to be on expanding applications and new evidence for adjuvant immunotherapy. And that will be uh, from Dr. Charlotte Arian and Dr. Michael Postow. So Charlotte, I'll invite you up to discuss the cases. Thank you, Dr. Wargo. Um, So we're going to start with some cases before each section, and this is just to frame the question and things to think about as we hear the evidence. So first case is, uh, and and hopefully this will address some of your questions as we go through as well. First case is is Brian, a 75-year-old, very healthy marathoner with no significant past medical history, and he presents with a leg melanoma, and the biopsy showed a 2.5-millimeter ulcerated melanoma, Clark 4 with 14 mitoses, a T3B. He underwent a wide excision in a sentinel node, and two of his nodes were positive. One, had a, one node had a tumor burden of 3 millimeters, and the other had a tumor burden of 2.5 millimeters. So he's a T3B, N2A, stage 3C melanoma. He gets systemic imaging. There's no evidence of metastatic disease. He's BRAF wild type. And so we're going to hear a little bit about the data for stage 3 disease here um, from Dr. Pasta. But as you hear this, I want you to think about some things. Is this the classic patient that we should treat with adjuvant therapy and immune, uh, adjuvant immune therapy? And if you had a BRAF mutation, would that change? Would you rather have BRAF in, you know, inhibitors instead of um, immune therapy? Most of you probably know that the DreamSeq trial is a trial in stage 4 melanoma that showed that patients have a BRAF mutation and they 
get treatment, they do better if they get immune therapy rather than BRAF inhibition first as the first treatment. And so does that translate into our stage three group? And is there a role for other you know, dual checkpoint blockade in this setting of adjuvant therapy in stage three disease? So we're gonna come back to these questions, but for now I'm gonna invite Dr. Postow to come up and um, look at the evidence for stage three. So. Thank you, Dr. Arian and Dr. Wargo and Peerview for having me here. This is my first SSO meeting, so I appreciate being welcomed as a medical oncologist. And I think this topic is really great to talk about because as a medical oncologist, I see these patients that have just completed surgery for stage three melanoma coming to me and talking about adjuvant approaches. And what they've heard from their surgical teams is so important and what the role that you play in kind of getting their minds in the right framework to kind of think about the next steps along the care trajectory. So I appreciate discussing this in a multidisciplinary fashion tonight. So we'll go through some of the evidence for stage three melanoma adjuvant treatment. And we'll focus on kind of the highest level of drugs that have shown the most efficacy. And this is from the NCCN guideline panel. I'm not going to go through every little box here, but I think the bottom line is we have two PD-1 inhibitors, nivolumab and pembrolizumab that can be used. And then we have for BRAF mutant patients, the combination of the BRAF inhibitor dabrafenib plus the MEK inhibitor um, that can be used to BRAF plus MEK, dabrafenib plus trametinib. And we don't know what's better among all three of these different options for stage three melanoma. These are all category one or preferred. Some of the little nuances there are related to the fact that in the nivolumab adjuvant study in transit stage three melanoma was included and that's why it got a category one as opposed to preferred. So I wouldn't really worry about that. PD-1 agents really behave similarly. And then dabrafenib and trametinib also very effective in the setting. And I'll show you some of the data to support that moving forward here. So when we think about PD-1 inhibitors, in every context in medical oncology in stage four unresectable patients and the same in stage three resected patients, PD-1 is better than CTLA-4 blockade. So PD-1 with nivolumab in the Checkmate 238 study was better than ipilimumab monotherapy. This is the recurrence-free survival now with up to five years of follow-up in some of these patients. And you can see the hazard ratio of 0.72 favoring adjuvant nivolumab over adjuvant ipilimumab. Now, some people could say, well, ipilimumab is an active control in this group, so how well does PD-1 really work against observation? We don't have the nivolumab versus observation adjuvant trial. I'll share the pembrolizumab versus adjuvant uh, observation uh, in a moment. But I think the bottom line is PD-1 is better than ipilimumab. So if you're thinking about giving someone immune therapy in the adjuvant setting, it's a PD-1 agent. Nivolumab in this particular trial, and then the Keynote 054 study tested adjuvant pembrolizumab against observation alone with a hazard ratio of 0.61. So the hazard ratio looks a little bit uh, you know, lower, which would be a decreased risk of recurrence or death for pembrolizumab in this study. But keep in mind, the nivolumab was against the active control ipilimumab. So you can't really cross-trial compare these. I think of pembrolizumab and nivolumab, it's Coke and Pepsi. Some people have their preferences, the, sim the same side effects, same efficacy. And the bottom line is, in addition to preventing recurrences with PD-1, compared to observation, DMFS or distant metastasis-free survival was also improved with pembrolizumab versus placebo. So this is not just treatment that reduces local regional recurrences, it also reduces distant metastases as well. So 
an important treatment option to offer patients, especially those that are BRAF wild type that don't even have the option of BRAF and MEK inhibitors, as the patient was in this case. But then the question comes up, well, what do you do with a BRAF mutant patient? And is there some differential efficacy of PD-1 inhibitors based upon BRAF mutation status? And this forest plot shows that there really is no clear demonstration that BRAF mutant patients do worse or better compared to patients that don't have a BRAF mutation with adjuvant PD-1. This is showing the data from nivolumab versus ipilimumab. And you can kind of split hairs on this, but the bottom line is everything is favoring PD-1 and very similar outcomes. So you can't use BRAF mutational status to say yes or no to adjuvant PD-1 per se. In the keynote 054, same message, pembrolizumab, the PD-1 inhibitor compared to observation, was favored for patients with BRAF mutations and those that did not have BRAF mutations. So the benefit of adjuvant PD-1 over either observation or ipilimumab is regardless of the BRAF mutation status. But if a patient does have a BRAF mutation, and this is a great opportunity to think about sending the BRAF test for your stage three patients when you make the diagnosis of stage three melanoma. In that case, when they do have a BRAF mutation, you have the option of the BRAF inhibitor dabrafenib and the MEK inhibitor trametinib given in combination. And the data to support using that is from the COMBI-AD study, where up to one year of adjuvant dabrafenib and trametinib improved recurrence-free survival over placebo. And you can see these curves really, really separated quite well. And it's quite impressive that they remain so separate, even though the treatment was only given for up to the 12-month point here. So... People wonder, well, if you stop treatment, either with immune therapy or targeted therapy, will you lose the benefit? I think this shows that even if you take that year and you stop, the difference in that recurrence-free survival longer term still continues to favor the adjuvant dabrafenib and trametinib group. So adjuvant BRAF-MEC, certainly an option for your stage three resected patients with a BRAF mutation. What about dual checkpoint blockade? What if you combine a few different immune therapies together? That's being done in the metastatic setting. Studies to mention briefly, one, the Checkmate 915 study, unfortunately it was negative. So when ipilimumab was added to adjuvant nivolumab, there was no improvement in recurrence-free survival. It was a lower dose of ipilimumab, one milligram per kilogram given every six weeks. This is different than what we do in the metastatic setting or in the neoadjuvant setting, as we'll talk about later in this session. But this low dose of ipilimumab every six weeks did not improve recurrence-free survival over adjuvant nivolumab alone. So we cannot endorse combination immune therapy with ipilimumab and nivolumab in the adjuvant setting for stage three resected patients. Now, there were some interesting data from a randomized phase two study from the Immuned study, which was from Europe, where patients received the FDA-approved dose of nivolumab and ipilimumab, which is one mg per kg of nevo and three mg per kg of ipilimumab, Nivolumab uh, was another arm in the study, and then placebo was the control. And this actually showed recurrence-free survival benefits of PD-1 or combination IPPD-1 over observation alone. And actually, there's an overall survival benefit for IPNEVO over observation alone in the study. A lot of caveats about that overall survival benefit. But I think the bottom line is for stage 4 resected patients, if they've not seen a checkpoint inhibitor, absolutely, they should be considered for at least adjuvant PD-1, or that should be offered. So moving into some new approaches, and then we'll, we'll kind of conclude the stage three discussion and move on to some stage two considerations. Some new approaches in the metastatic setting, we've been exploring a LAG3 inhibitor called relatlimab that's actually shown to be better when combined with nivolumab compared to nivolumab alone in stage 
three unresectable patients or stage four patients. And LAG3 is another immune checkpoint that's on T cells. It has a number of different binding partners, but thought to bind MHC2 and result in T cell inhibition. And so by blocking LAG3, similar to blocking PD-1, you enhance T cell activity. And so the idea is that if you combine LAG3 with PD-1, would you improve recurrence-free survival in the adjuvant setting, just like there's been improvements in progression-free survival in the metastatic setting. And the Relativity 098 trial has completed accrual now for nevorilatlamab versus nivolumab alone. And we are eagerly going to anticipate the recurrence-free survival data coming from this combination study. I hope it will be positive given that it was positive in stage four, but we don't have data yet. Um, we will await those data eagerly. Lastly, there's a lot of excitement now about personalized cancer vaccines and mRNA vaccines in general coming out of the COVID pandemic. With improvements of mRNA technology and vaccine technology, there's been uh, interest in kind of sequencing the tumor, seeing what kind of mutations are present and which among those mutations are neoantigens or ones that should be immunologically relevant. And then what is done is an mRNA is made from those, uh, based upon those neoantigens, up to 34 neoantigens in a patient's tumor. And what happens is this personalized cancer vaccine is then given to patients and their own antigen presenting cells essentially make an antigenic peptide that in, well, the idea of this is so that your immune system is boosted to specifically go after those neoantigens that we believe that are relevant for that individual patient. There was a phase two study that was just conducted with this personalized cancer vaccine versus uh, placebo, uh, so it was Pembro plus vaccine versus Pembro alone. And the, the phase two study showed a favorable hazard ratio of 0.56 with a p-value of 0.266. That's a randomized phase two study, so not the definitive experiment. And we're eagerly looking forward to larger phase studies to try to see if that can be confirmed. Uh, but something very interesting scientifically and hopefully will be another example of something that we're doing to kind of continue to rise uh, in terms of relapse-free survival in stage three resected melanoma. So I'll turn this back to Dr. Arian to go back into the case for a little discussion, then we'll move to stage two. Okay, thank you, Dr. Pasto. So back to our case, 75-year-old uh, stage three C resected melanoma has a significant risk of recurrence. What would you quote this patient as a recurrence in the office in you know, rough numbers? Yeah, rough, rough numbers for stage three resected melanoma it really can be upwards of 60 to 70 percent. Right, right. So is this in an individual he, who either one of you think should get adjuvant immune therapy? Would you offer it to them? Yes, I think they need to have that option for sure. Right. Versus active observation, right, which is also still... Uh, an option because we still don't know for sure that if you observe them and then treated them at the time of recurrence, we still don't have survival data to say for sure. We just know relapse-free survival is improved, but we don't know overall survival would be different, right? Okay, what if the patient had a BRAF mutation? Would you go with immune therapy first or with a BRAF inhibitor? I guess this question's <laughs> coming to me. Yeah, <laughs> it's the hard question. Yes. So the first thing I'll say about the BRAF inhibitors in the setting, and I know this, we're going to get to this a little bit later too, but if you don't do a sentinel node and patients don't have stage three established melanoma, BRAF inhibitors are not an option. So they're not an option for stage two. So if this patient had a BRAF mutation and they were stage three C, I would definitely think about adjuvant BRAF and MEC. And when you look at those hazard ratios, the question is, well, what's more effective, adjuvant BRAF-MEC or adjuvant PD-1? 
I would say they look about the same in terms of efficacy. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, in the metastatic setting, BRFMEC looks better than immune therapy. Well, it's better than ipinevo immune therapy, but we don't really know kind of in the adjuvant setting. And a lot of people think that BRF and MEC inhibitors might be more effective in the setting of micrometastatic disease than they are in me- macrometastatic disease. So I think we're dealing with two similarly effective treatments, PD-1, BRF-MAC in the adjuvant setting. It's all on the side effects. So immune therapy is less likely to cause side effects with PD-1 alone, but when they cause side effects, it can be requiring immune suppression, it can be long-lasting, kind of long-term endocrinopathies that affect the thyroid or pituitary gland. So it's kind of a little bit of a toss-up in terms of what's better, what the patient wants to do, IV treatment with immune therapy, pills with BRF-MAC inhibitors. It's one of my hardest consultations when I have one of these patients. From a surgical perspective, I think it's really good to send the BRAF mutation if you can so that when we see these patients, we know what their options are and we don't just have to say, you might have a BRAF mutation, I need to send the BRAF test and then come back and see me when I get that result. That would be helpful. And I think there really still is equipoise between these two options. Okay, great. And so the, 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 the dream seek you would say, though, really favors upfront immune therapy first in the metastatic setting, right? In the metastatic setting, yeah, we always give immune therapy first. Into the stage we okay. don't know yet for the adjuvant stage yep. three setting. Yep. Yeah. Yep. And then that, just to summarize, the benefit is maybe less um, irreversible uh, side effects with BRFMEC in, in stage three. And along those lines, is there a role for dual checkpoint blockade in stage three, or do you think the risk-benefit outweighs uh, that choice? I think when you have a resected stage three patient, there's no role for combination immune therapy. I would like to get people on these trials if we can, so the personalized cancer vaccine trial or others. Okay, great. So just as some follow-up to show, listen, many people do great. We think the benefit in stage three is at least a 30% uh, benefit in relapse-free survival for adjuvant PD-1. The consensus, this is a real case, that this case was that this patient could get adjuvant PD-1. But what if the patient got this, and this happens to a lot of people, they get, or a significant number, he got severe inflammatory arthritis, not able to walk, limiting his quality of life, resistant to prednisone required, additional immunosuppression with biologics so that he could just be functional. Six months later, so obviously the PD-1 was stopped. Six months later, PET scan demonstrates enlarged groin lymph nodes. PET scan doesn't show any other sites of disease. So options at that point are surgery, other local injectable therapies, clinical trials, most of which would include different formulations of immune therapy. Um, and so I think just to summarize quickly, I think we're at a surgical meeting. Let's not forget that surgery can be effective as a regional control in these patients. And I don't know if you want to disagree with me, Dr. Pasto, but the risk of retreating with immune therapy in the setting of, re- of resectable disease is probably not worth it. Right. right. And this is a 75-year-old marathoner, which yes. is impressive enough. <laughs> and now they have severe inflammatory arthritis. So, yeah. the, you know, this is a big quality of life change for this patient. I wouldn't give them more immune therapy. I would right. go to surgery. Right. Only in the metastatic setting would you have that risk. Right. So the patient had a groin dissection. There was three additional nodes that were positive with external extension. And there is consideration of radiation in that setting. So just to go back to some old principles, that surgery still is worthwhile. Now we're going to move on to stage two. So David is a 41-year-old with no significant past medical history, no medications, presents with a new diagnosis of a T3B ulcerated 2-millimeter melanoma of the back, 
Exam was normal without any palpable enlarged nodes. He underwent a wide excision and a negative sentinel lymph node biopsy. So he was a stage 2B, BRAF wild type. So the things that we're going to think about here is what's the best choice for this patient? Observation or adjuvant immune therapy, which is now approved in stage 2 disease. And what's the nature of the medical and surgical collaboration when making decisions on adjuvant therapy and even surgery? Did this patient even need a sentinel node to get to this decision? So to that, I'm going to invite my colleague, Dr. Pasto, back up to talk about it. Okay, the plot thickens without a node involved. All right, this is something that we debate all the time in our melanoma tumor board meetings. So stage two melanoma, I don't need to tell this audience, it's a tough disease. Just because it has a number two and not a number three behind it doesn't mean it's you know, a, a total cure from just surgery alone. These are some data that Ann Lee happened to be a friend of mine from medical school, put together from our Sloan Kettering database uh, a number of years ago on both time to relapse and also melanoma-specific survival for stage 2 patients. And the bottom line is stage 2 patients have recurrences of their melanoma, sometimes fatal recurrences, unfortunately. So it's a high-risk disease. And because of this being a high-risk disease, when you look at the staging algorithms from AJCC8, the outcomes for patients with stage 2C resected melanoma appear to be similar to stage 3B melanoma here. Now, this is melanoma-specific survival. A lot of these data for patients that are newly diagnosed in 2023 now with these substages of melanoma will have better melanoma-specific survival than the most recent staging that came out. So that'd be one other thing I would say to, to, to you when you're talking to patients about prognosis and otherwise, patients always go look this up and then they find these staging things. I tell patients, this was from data that was done a number of years ago, and these patients may have not have had all the, the latest treatments for the stage 4 melanoma and those that recurred. But either way, there's a very high risk stage 3C population that approximates stage 3B melanoma. If you're interested in staging, and I hope that you are, there's a practice aid that you can use. Just take this picture with the QR code there, and uh, PeerView has put that together for everybody. Because stage 2B and 2C melanoma is pretty high risk, there's been interest in taking those same treatments that we've explored in stage 4 melanoma, stage 3 melanoma, then they come to stage 2 melanoma. Pembro, Nevo, BRAF MEK inhibitors, this is all of interest to see, well, does it prevent recurrences in stage 2B melanoma? So stage 2B and 2C were studied in the Keynote 716 study. That was pembrolizumab versus placebo for up to one year of treatment. It's easy to think about adjuvant therapy. It's always up to one year of treatment, stage three, stage two. This was a placebo-controlled study with crossover to pembrolizumab at the time of recurrence to see what Dr. Arian brought up already. We don't know what overall survival implications are for any of this. And if you have recurrence-free survival that's positive, will that bear out to an overall survival benefit when these patients cross over and get the active drug at time of recurrence? Still remains unknown. We have recurrence-free survival data that have been presented, published, and now the FDA has approved adjuvant pembrolizumab in this indication for stage 2B and 2C-resected melanoma based upon the hazard ratio of 0.65 in favor of pembrolizumab over placebo and reducing the risk of recurrence or death. And this is all type recurrence. So if you look at 12-month recurrence rates, it's about a 7% difference. So what does that mean when you're talking to patients? You know, relative risk is a real hard thing to talk about. A 0.65% like, I mean, this is like what patients don't want to hear. It's just hard to kind of contextualize. I think about it as you have to treat 15 or 16 patients to prevent one recurrence. When you think about that, 
the distant metastasis-free survival is also improved with adjuvant pembrolizumab. So it's not just local regional recurrences that we're preventing with PD-1 in the adjuvant setting in stage 2B and 2C. The same kind of 6% benefit is carried over to the metastatic setting. So this is a stage 2 patient that would go to stage 4. 6% difference absolute at both 12 and 24 months. We want longer-term follow-up. We want overall survival from these studies, but it's still early days in adjuvant 2. The subgroup analyses, unfortunately, don't allow us to pick out someone who would benefit specifically from adjuvant PD-1 versus not. Kind of interesting that the tumor-infiltrating lymphocytes in the primary, those that were absent, had a kind of overlap of one here. Those that had present were a little bit more in favor of adjuvant PD-1. Hard to use that as a selection. This is a subgroup analysis, but I thought kind of interesting. If anything made a difference, you know, maybe something about the immune status of the tumor. We need to learn more about ctDNA and other risk profiling that's going on. There's an abstract that's being presented tomorrow at 1.49 p.m., uh, so you can take a look at abstract 54, where some additional outcomes by tumor location will be discussed. Adjuvant PD-1, the Coke, the Pepsi, the Nevo, the Pembro, the results are pretty much the same with adjuvant nivolumab as compared to adjuvant pembrolizumab. The Checkmate 76K study tested Pembro versus, I'm sorry, tested Nevo versus placebo in a very similar patient population, resected stage 2B and 2C, and followed patients for recurrence-free survival. And in this study, too, we had a positive study for recurrence-free survival favoring nivolumab over observation alone. The hazard ratio here is 0.42. Again, hard to compare cross trials, but looks pretty good, actually, for reducing recurrences in this patient population, and also distant metastasis-free survival improvement. A little less follow-up here with adjuvant nevo compared to adjuvant pembrolizumab. Adjuvant nivolumab is not yet FDA-approved for this indication, so if you're going to do adjuvant therapy in stage 2B and 2C melanoma, you have to do it in, with Pembro at the moment, but nevo hopefully will be coming in the future. So as we think about next steps for adjuvant stage 2B and 2C resected melanoma, big questions. You can't do it if you, if you have a BRF mutant patient. The only option still is PD-1. So you have to have stage three to do BRAF treatment for these patients. So if you're wondering about sentinel lymph node biopsy, if it is stage three and you're missing it because you didn't do the sentinel lymph node, you're giving the patient only options for PD-1 and not exploring the possibility of BRAF MEK inhibitor. So that's a plug for doing a sentinel lymph node. We're testing ENCO and BINI in stage two resected melanoma in the Columbus AD study. There's a biomarker-based risk stratification in Germany study testing NEVO. It's a... Uh, test that uses the melogenics gene expression profile and randomizing patient with that high-risk gene expression profile assay to uh, adjuvant treatment with nivolumab or observation. So that's with the idea, if we can learn more about the primary, could we select patients better for adjuvant PD-1? And then there's this KeyVibe 010 study, which is Pembro uh, plus a TIGIT inhibitor versus Pembrolizumab alone. So all of these studies are ongoing. We don't have any data yet, but that's where things are moving. Can we pick people out for adjuvant PD-1? Because just treating everybody might be problematic from a side effect perspective. So with that, we'll go back to the case. Uh, Dr. Aaron, to conclude our session here. Okay, so back to this patient with young, healthy patient, stage 2B melanoma, maybe a risk of recurrence on the order of 30% or so over five mm -hmm. years. And what's the best choice here, observation or adjuvant therapy? Yeah, this is, it. if I blocked an hour in my day for the stage three, this is an hour and a half consultation for stage two. And people in my clinic say, oh, they're just stage two. You know, it'll be a quick one. 
yeah. you know, or they're just adjuvant, it'll be a quick one. Well, actually, it's a longer one because you're taking a healthy person that you may have cured from surgery alone and now potentially introducing the possibility of PD-1 side effects, which are not that common to be severe, but it happens and it can be quite a problem. So what do we do in clinic? I think adjuvant PD-1 needs to be offered and discussed to all patients and it depends on the patient if it's appropriate or not. If a patient has a lot of medical problems and, you know, that this is not going to be their kind of um, most life-limiting issue in the near future, I wouldn't give them adjuvant PD-1 at all. If you have a young, highly motivated patient that does not have a BRF mutation and they really want to just do something, it is something that's out there that reduces their risk of recurrence. Keep in mind, you're going to treat about 15 or 16 patients to prevent one recurrence. So it is a lot of overtreatment still in this point. A lot of people are exposed to PD-1 costs and side effects. Not a huge, huge benefit in terms of absolute risk reduction of that 7% difference. But among those 7%, if you're one of those patients, it's a big deal. So it's a hard conversation. I don't have an answer for everyone. So you would say, though, either one of you, right, that, 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 that understanding the risk-benefit and the underlying risk is important in these discussions. Yep. So this is important when we get to the surgical uh, and medical oncology decision-making. What if this patient didn't have a sentinel node and was only referred for a discussion of adjuvant therapy? We know that it's approved for stage 2 disease. How does that change the discussion? Well, if you look at this, if he was just a stage 2 uh, Maybe risk of recurrence, 20, 30%. Absolute risk reduction is about 8%. The toxicity in this setting is about 17%. And we do think we have a salvage. You could be treated on recurrence, but you probably also could get surgery on recurrence. But if he was a, I wonder when a sentinel node and actually had a positive sentinel node, this patient would be stage 3C with a risk of recurrence that's 50% at least. Risk reduction in this setting is 30%, depending on which trial you look at. And toxicity, again, according to which trial, somewhere around 14%, 15% for PD-1, and about 5% for BRAF-MEC. Again, still a salvage. Patients could be treated on or have surgery on recurrence. But it definitely frames the discussion in a different manner. So from our perspective, it's still important to stage these people up front and give them the most information they can have about the risk-benefit of toxicity and treatment. So we're going to move into more advanced disease now, neoadjuvant. Again, framing it with a case. So the first case is a 59-year-old male who had a remote history of an early melanoma, 0.6 millimeters, uh, actually non-ulcerated, no mitoses, excised eight years ago. Some comorbidities, diabetes, GERD, hypertension, um, and presents with palpable nodes in the axilla. It's biopsy and proven to be melanoma. And this is what the patient has on imaging. So you can see on the imaging on the left, the CT scan, that the patient has multiple positive nodes. And this is also confirmed on the PET portion of the CT. So multiple positive nodes, palpable nodes, definitely, uh, and no distant disease. On the contrary, another interesting presentation of patients with um, nodal disease is a case of Lisa. She's a 41-year-old female who presents with a melanoma of the mid-back measuring 0.5 millimeters on biopsy, but when she underwent a wide excision, the pathology showed a 2.1 millimeter melanoma, mainly dermal, which raised the concern for a possible metastasis, and therefore imaging was performed. And what you can see here is that the patient has small but multiple 
subs, uh, multiple um, lymph nodes and bilateral um, axilla, um, and again, a biopsy confirmed metastatic disease. So two, two different tumor burdens, but both probably with a very high risk, one with palpable nodes, one with metastatic disease to bilateral axilla. So we're going to hear a little bit more about neoadjuvant therapy, uh, but first I want you to kind of keep some of these questions in mind. Who is a candidate for neoadjuvant? How would you dose the medicines to get the optimal uh, effectiveness uh, and reduce toxicity? What about new agents? And what about using adjuvant after neoadjuvant? And so for that, I'm going to welcome up Dr. Wargo. Great. Thank you, Charlotte. All right, so now we'll talk a little bit about the latest on neoadjuvant immunotherapy in melanoma. And so, so what is the rationale for neoadjuvant immunotherapy and why might it be better than adjuvant treatment? And, and there's a couple of theoretical advantages. One is that the response to therapy can be determined for an individual patient, which can actually potentially even help guide the need for additional adjuvant therapy. Another is that you can actually reduce tumor, tumor burden before surgery. Uh, we can use this pathologic response data as a potential surrogate outcome marker for relapse-free and overall survival. And in the case of T-cell checkpoint blockade, neoadjuvant therapy could induce a stronger and broader tumor-specific T-cell response, and I'll show a little bit more on this. And finally, I think, um, you know, another potential real advantage is that an easier baseline biomarker identification due to more homogeneous patient populations. And, and, you know, so there's some really strong clinical rationale for doing neoadjuvant as opposed to adjuvant. And there's actually data in the preclinical models. So this was a, a model of breast cancer, actually, where they treated with neoadjuvant versus adjuvant immunotherapy and actually found that the mice who received neoadjuvant immunotherapy actually did much better than the ones that received adjuvant. And, and keep this, this plot in mind because you'll see some very similar human data soon. And so, so uh, this was from a great uh, review by uh, Caroline Robert, uh, published in Nature Medicine, where she kind of posed the question, is neoadjuvant better than adjuvant immunotherapy, and why might this be? And if you think about in the case of uh, adjuvant, where a tumor is surgically resected, and you give monoclonal antibodies targeting uh, anti or PD-1, uh, really there's a low burden of micrometastatic disease potentially, you know, very difficult for these, for the T cells to actually mount a response and, and really uh, less effective therapy in principle, potentially. Whereas if you have a tumor in situ, you can actually, when you give these monoclonal antibodies that target these checkpoints on the T cells, you can actually, uh, they can actually see antigen as it sits in situ and actually mount an anti-tumor T cell response that tumor is then resected surgically and uh, those T cells persist and are able to mediate uh, more of a therapeutic benefit. And really, uh, you know, the consideration of neoadjuvant, preferably by a clinical trial followed by surgery, is included in the NCCN guidelines and a growing body of phase two and phase three evidence supports the use of neoadjuvant immunotherapy. And so adjuvant versus neoadjuvant uh, pembrolizumab, this is a randomized phase two study, uh, SWOG1801. And if, uh, if anyone was at ESMO uh, in Paris in August, that was a pretty amazing presentation. And so this uh, SWOG1801 uh, was included patients with stage 3B 
to oligometastatic resectable stage four patients, and uh, those patients had to have measurable, clinically detectable, and resectable cutaneous acral and mucosa melanomas without brain metastases. These patients were randomized one to one to either undergo treatment with uh, neoadjuvant versus adjuvant pembrolizumab. Note that the same duration of therapy was given, but one arm um, had neoadjuvant, then surgery, then adjuvant, whereas the other arm had surgery followed by adjuvant. Um, Again, equal uh, amount of immunotherapy given. And what do we know uh, from the results of these studies uh, showing that uh, neoadjuvant versus adjuvant pembrolizumab actually prolongs event-free survival uh, versus adjuvant uh, pembrolizumab alone? And so at a median follow-up of around 15 months, the neoadjuvant group had significantly longer EFS than the adjuvant only, uh, highly statistically significant. It kind of resembles those, uh, those studies in preclinical models we saw earlier where neoadjuvant does much better than adjuvant. And so this was just blockbuster data that was uh, presented by Sapna Patel and Tony Rebus uh, at ESMO and, and recently published in the New England Journal of Medicine. And the EFS at two years was 72% in the neoadjuvant um, adjuvant group and the adjuvant group in, uh, only was 49%. So, so really impressive data. Now, how about, you know, again, we kind of touched on the use of targeted therapy versus uh, immune checkpoint blockade in the adjuvant setting. How about in the neoadjuvant setting? Well, there was a great publication put up by Alex Menzies and others um, from the International Neoadjuvant Melanoma Consortium, where they showed that if you treat patients with neoadjuvant immunotherapy, you actually have superior uh, relapse-free survival by uh, pathologic response versus targeted therapy. And I'll just walk you through this. And so they did a pooled analysis of all the, uh, the, the studies that were published to date Uh, using either targeted therapy on the right here versus treatment with neoadjuvant immunotherapy on the left here. And what they showed in these studies is is that if patients had any response, either a pathologic partial complete or a near uh, complete response, and those patients uh, treated with neoadjuvant immunotherapy, all of those patients actually derived tremendous benefit, whereas uh, if they had no response whatsoever, they didn't. Now, contrast this with patients who actually are treated with neoadjuvant-targeted therapy. If they have a complete response, they do pretty well, but not everyone does, and often patients will relapse, often in the brain. And if they have anything less than a complete response, they actually do quite poorly. And so treatment with neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade, at least in this pooled analysis, seems to be uh, better than treatment with neoadjuvant-targeted therapy. Now, how about... um combined immune checkpoint blockade in the neoadjuvant setting? Well, what um, uh, Christian Blank and others were able to show is that when you treat with neoadjuvant versus adjuvant combined immune checkpoint blockade targeting CTLA-4 and PD-1 or ipilimumab and nivolumab at a standard uh, regimen, you actually get uh, expansion of many more T-cell clones in the neoadjuvant versus the adjuvant setting and a very high rate of pathologic response. Um, and really, they published these findings, uh, and, and toxicity, though, was high with this uh, IPI-3 NEVO-1 regimen, and so, so this was explored a little bit further. And they ran uh, this OPACIN-NEO study where they, ran, where they took patients uh, who had uh, high-risk disease and then uh, for neoadjuvant treatment and randomized them to either get uh, IPI-3 
three, NEVO one, IPI one, NEVO three, or what we call flip dose IPI NEVO, versus sequential ipilimumab and nivolumab treatment. And what they found uh, treated them in the neoadjuvant setting, took them to surgery, and then looked at pathologic responses, uh, which were really pretty good uh, for both the conventional and the flip dose IPI NEVO, uh, but the toxicity was much lower for the flip dose. And so this is really kind of the the go-to regimen, if you will, is, is what we call flip-dose-ipinevo, um, and sequential did really not perform well at all. And so this flip-dose does appear to maximize efficacy and limit toxicity of new adjuvant immunotherapy uh, with IPI-1-NEVO-3, okay, and, and uh, with we'll get to the number of doses. There's actually a really good question here. Now, how about the relapse-free survival? So there was an update. Christian Blank uh, presented an update to this at ASCO in 2022, and so after a median follow-up of of uh, 46.8 months, the RFS and median RFS and OS were not reached. And so you can see very good outcomes for these patients. Uh, you know, and again, um, the estimated three-year RFS also quite good. Now, how about, uh, you know, we talked a little bit about uh, adjuvant uh, LAG3 or treating with LAG3 and uh, c- combined with PD-1. And, and uh, this has also been studied in the neoadjuvant setting uh, with a beautiful study done between uh, MD Anderson Cancer Center and Memorial Sloan Kettering Cancer Center. And really where uh, patients were with resectable stage 3B, C, or D, or oligometastatic stage 4 melanoma were uh, enrolled uh, and basically treated with neoadjuvant relatlimib, or LAG3, along with nivolumab, or PD-1 blockade. They were treated uh, for two doses, got surgical resection after they were restaged, and then went on to uh, adjuvant treatment with Nevo and Rella, and were followed. And what we found when uh, we ran these studies is that there was a very high pathologic complete response rate, which we now uh, know is a pretty decent surrogate for long-term outcomes. So over 50% past CR rate, um, uh, you know, with many near past CRs and other partial responses. And the uh, overall probability of overall survival was quite high. Uh, and when you look at it's those patients, again, who actually achieve a pathologic, a major pathologic response, who actually derive the most benefit, whereas patients who don't achieve a major pathologic response really don't do quite well at, as all, at all. So, so again, I think, uh, you know, going back to this clinical consult, what are the next steps? So we have Matthew, who has recurrent melanoma, bulky lymphadenopathy in the axilla. We have... Uh, Lisa, who came in with what was thought to be a thin primary, had a wide excision, and, you know, it was essentially upstaged and had imaging showing bilateral axillary lymphadenopathy, albeit uh, a lower burden. Are both of these candidates for neoadjuvant therapy? And I think, I think most of us, if not all of us in the room, would agree absolutely yes. Um, you know, I think that second case is really interesting and really highlights the SWOG-1801, you know, that S-1801, the neoadjuvant versus adjuvant. I think that was a, a discussion that we really actually had in, on the heels of that uh, being presented and published. Now, would you consider dual checkpoint blockade? If so, would flip dose schedule be an optimal way to reduce immune-related adverse events? And, and uh, absolutely, that's what this uh, second patient got. I believe, did the first patient get ipinevo flip dose, Charlotte? Um. Lisa? Oh, no, no, the, the, your, your patient. Oh, first, the first one. Yeah. Uh, yes. Yes. Okay, yes. so, and again, I think that's kind of our go-to, you know, um, is to do, we will often do flip-dose ipinevo for 
for one dose and followed by two doses of PD-1 monotherapy. You know, I mean, I think there's, it's, uh, there's a lot of different regimens you can use, but that seems to limit the toxicity as well. Is there a role for PD-1-like-3 um, or for single-agent PD-1? Again, kind of uh, taking patients as a personalized approach, looking at comorbidities, uh, likelihood of toxicity, and other issues, um, you know, I think is, is certainly a consideration. And then does using neoadjuvant preclude subsequent adjuvant treatment? And, and uh, you know, certainly we'll go into that a bit more. All right. And so maybe, Charlotte, I'll invite you back up for this. Well, this is really just a prelude to the next section a little bit. But since these are real cases, um, that first case you sh- we showed um, where the patient had multiple... Um, positive nodes. Um, after neoadjuvant therapy, the lymph nodes decreased in size and PET avidity. And so I think it raises a lot of questions. And Dr. Warbo is going to talk a little bit. What's the extent of surgical resection now? Um, and, you know, does you just excise the one node? Do you excise all the nodes? In this case, I'll tell you, the patient elected to have all the nodes because there were still, you know, prominent nodes on imaging afterwards. And there was only two nodes with melanoma had a 70% treatment effect. 21 nodes, interestingly, had melanosis. So that's an interesting finding. And, you know, if we just biopsy the other enlarged nodes, um, you know, would we have been able to figure that out? I don't know. So, um, but I think what we're going to hear about a little bit is what's the extent of surgical resection? And this is another scenario that we see, which is a patient has a large node, as you see on the left, that's very pet-avid and it's only one node, and then after neoadjuvant therapy, that one node gets smaller and less PAD-AVID. So this really suggests that it's just in you know, one area, and can that node be the barometer of what's going on? So should therapeutic lymph node be omitted in this case? What uh, do we do with the patient who experiences toxicity during therapy, especially if they have an endocrine toxicity? How does that affect our surgery? And how should we manage these in the neoadjuvant setting? So to do that, we're going to have Dr. Wargo come back up, and we'll go through this, and some of this will be interactive. You can just... Thanks, I appreciate it. All right, so now we'll talk a little bit more about the impact of neoadjuvant response and some safety considerations. And so getting back to that question, you know, gosh, you look at these amazing responses in these patients, and we say, do we really have to do it? complete therapeutic lymph node dissection. And so, so there's a group of investigators who asked that question. And through this PRADO study, uh, which stands for Personalized Response-Driven Adjuvant Therapy After Combination of Ipilimumab and Nivolumab in Stage 3BC uh, Melanoma, uh, they asked, can therapeutic lymph node dissection be omitted for certain patients after neoadjuvant ipinevo? You know, we're getting such... Uh, profound responses, can we actually limit the extent of surgical resection? And so what the group did to help answer this question is they took patients with stage 3B3C, uh, de novo or recurrent melanoma, uh, who had measurable disease, um, and gave them two courses of ipi 1 nevo 3 or the flip dose IPI-NEVO, and then um, actually did a resection of that marked lymph node. So they actually put a marker in prior to to, uh, treatment and actually resected that marked lymph node and then looked at pathologic response. And if they had pathologic um, complete response or near 
pathologic complete response, which was uh, 0 to 10% viable tumor cells, they did not do a completion lymph node dissection and just followed those patients. If they had a partial, pathologic partial response of between 10 and 50% uh, viable tumor cells, they did a completion lymph node dissection and then followed. And then if they did not have a response or a pathologic non-response, which uh, constituted over 50% viable tumor cells, they did a completion lymph node dissection and then gave them adjuvant uh, nivolumab and followed those patients. It's a really interesting study, and I think uh, hard to, to really do this, but I applaud Christian Blank and others who really did this study. And, and what we saw when they reported out these results was that uh, the patients actually do pretty well, you know, so relapse-free survival was pretty good. Notably, there were four patients who did have a local, regional, nodal relapse, but were able to be salvaged with surgery, um, and uh, thus the distant metastasis-free survival uh, was really okay. And so, you know, I think what we can learn from this is, you know, we may be able to de-escalate uh, our extent of surgical resection, but it comes, you know, with some caveats. So I think, you know, really, how can we summarize this? And so I think, uh, you know, this uh, Prado confirms the safety and high pathologic complete uh, response rate of ipinevo in the neoadjuvant setting uh, compared to opus and neo, which I showed before you before. Omission of the therapeutic lymph node dissection and omission of adjuvant therapy in patients with a major pathologic response was associated with better quality of life and resulted in higher, high two-year relapse-free and disease or distant metastasis-free survival rates. But there were nodal recurrences and we need more data and trials. And so, and I think, I think we'll hear from Dr. Postow too. It's like, should, you know, is, do you really feel okay about omitting adjuvant therapy in these patients? I, I think, you know, we could, we could iterate on this. Patients with a pathologic partial response do seem to have a higher relapse rate than suggested previously, therefore might benefit from additional adjuvant therapy. And the addition of adjuvant uh, systemic therapy plus or minus radiation in patients with the non-response seems to improve uh, two-year relapse-free survival uh, compared to historical data. Now, how about other cancer types, right? And so, of course, the topic today is is melanoma, but uh, for those of you who may have been at ESMO, again, not only did we see the amazing uh, SAT-01 data, we also saw this niche 2 data from patients with uh, DMMR uh, colorectal cancer, the niche 2 study, and where they, you know, basically saw uh, treated with neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade and saw major pathologic responses in 95% of these patients, with 67% having a pathologic complete response. And they equated this waterfall plot to a lake, actually, because of the deep and profound responses here. So pretty amazing. I think a neoadjuvant immunotherapy is here to stay and being used more widely. Now, how about the safety experience? And, and this is, you know, the double-edged sword, if you will, of uh, the use of neoadjuvant immunotherapy. Not only can you get brilliant responses, but you can also get toxicity. And so, so uh, you know, we put out a paper uh, in the Annals of Surgical Oncology a few years ago, uh, really kind of highlighting toxicity of immune checkpoint inhibitors with considerations for the surgeon. Uh, we know that mechanistically that not only can these uh, treatment with immune checkpoint blockade activate uh, uh, really tumor-specific immune cells, but uh, non-specific immune cells. And this is re- what really contributes to immune-related adverse events. Now, if you look at um, the different types of toxicity, pulmonary GI, endocrine, renal, 
uh, uh, colitis and then skin rashes from treatment initiation. You can see kind of a, a schema of uh, when they occur. And uh, you know this is summarized nicely in this publication. So if you want to go back and take a look at this. And if we learn from Opus and Neo, you know, we do know that the incidence of immune-related adverse events does appear to decrease over time. And so if you look really kind of at each of these, the frequency does uh, decrease over time. And the majority of toxicities occur within the first 12 weeks. Only four patients develop their first high-grade IRAE between or beyond 12 weeks. Um, and so, so there is uh, some caveats there. Now, how about the safety experience with neoadjuvant uh, treatment with anti-PD-1 and anti-LAG-3 or uh, Nevorella. And the safety of PD-1 and LAG-3 neoadjuvant therapy is actually favorable compared with other combination immunotherapy regimens. And actually in the, the neoadjuvant study, there were no grade three uh, or above adverse events during the neoadjuvant portion. Um, but there still are some, you know, and so I think you do need to be on the lookout for these immune-related adverse events, even in these patients. And this has not been used as widely, so I think we, you know, we may uh, you know, st still see a little bit more yet to come, but I think uh, overall much better uh, tolerated from an immune-related adverse event standpoint. Now, SWOG-1801, safety of PD-1 neoadjuvant therapy. I think there were similar rates of high-grade um, AEs in either group with no new toxic effects of pembrolizumab observed in either trial group. And in the neoadjuvant and uh, followed by adjuvant group, disease progression or toxic effects resulting in, in, in inability to undergo surgery occurred in less than 10% patients of patients. So again, this is a safe regimen with a low rate of grade three or above adverse events. And so uh, I list up here, I won't go over it in detail, this is uh, provided as a resource to you, this is on your slides, but recommended strategies for managing IREs, there's several guidelines that are out now, uh, including from ASCO, the NCCN, SITSI, and ESMO, and for various grades, grade uh, one, grade two, and grade three, and four immune-related adverse events, really the considerations uh, to be taken uh, into account. And, you know, I think there are uh, definitely, uh, it's, it's important to be familiar with the different uh, really immune-related adverse events and how they're treated as surgeons. You know, we certainly have seen them pretty frequently in the neoadjuvant and, uh, and post-operative setting even. And so uh, final thoughts and take-home messages, I think, you know, from the standpoint of adjuvant therapy, I think patients with stage 3 melanoma have a high risk of recurrence, especially bulky stage 3, despite optimal surgical management, and adjuvant therapy should really be considered. Um, adjuvant therapy with uh, targeted therapy or immunotherapy is effective. You know, we saw beautiful data from uh, Dr. Postow and decreases the risk of recurrence by roughly half. And randomized data are showing benefits in stage two melanoma and decision-making uh, should really be individualized. But again, there's a lot of caveats with this. Now, how about neoadjuvant? I think the use of neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade is superior to adjuvant treatment. We've seen this uh, not only in preclinical models now in proof of concept, SWOG 1801. And then single agents and combinations can be considered really highly um, tailored to the patient. Surgeons and multidisciplinary teams need to be cognizant of the toxicity and appropriate management. And there is a potential for limiting the extent of surgical intervention uh, through studies like Prado, as well as uh, using novel combinations like with anti-PD-1 and anti-LAG-3, but these need to be uh, studied a bit further. And I think, you know, can we actually identify um, biomarkers that will actually help guide uh, 
treatment, you know, with combination versus single agent neoadjuvant. And some really interesting data was published um, from Christian Blank's group looking at uh, baseline interferon score and TMB and uh, markers like that. And so, but again, more work needs to be done. And so I think precision cancer medicine is on the way. And so, so at this point, we'll go ahead and move to Q&A. So I'll join my, my esteemed colleagues over at the table and we'll read off some questions, but would also welcome questions from the live audience as well. I can start just quickly. So uh, with respect to the stage two data as people are coming hopefully forward to have some more in-person discussion, the uh, clarification, so both data from Keynote 716 and the uh, 76K adjuvant NEVO stage two study will be discussed at SSO tomorrow. So there are two abstracts, one for each of those randomized uh, trials in stage two resected melanoma. So a little plug to go to those sessions and continue the conversation on this topic there. A question kind of related to stage two, you know, how do you make this decision with the patient? And what do you, what do you say? What are the factors that you can use? I think unlike in stage three, for stage two, you have less information because in stage two, you really have thickness, you have ulceration, and yes, you could kind of discuss about mitotic figures and things like other things that might be relevant prognostically, but it's just a few things that you have with the primary tumor only. In stage three, for th stage 3B or stage 3C, there are a lot of different factors, kind of like good stage 3B and bad stage 3B or good stage 3C and bad stage 3C. And I find it a little bit easier to kind of within those categories of staging and substaging to kind of get assessment of risks and benefits. So it's a little harder in stage two. I haven't given a lot of adjuvant PD-1 for stage two patients just quite yet. Yes, it is the same high risk as stage 3B, but that RFS benefit, if you look at the absolute numbers, you know, you're treating, like I said before, 15 or 16 patients to prevent one recurrence. And without an overall survival benefit for stage four adjuvant PD-1 from the Immunet study, I think it's gonna be hard to see an adjuvant overall survival benefit in stage two melanoma, especially. So. You know, for a very motivated patient, really wants to do something, it's something that you should be offering and considering, but it's not something that you have to do for everybody. Just getting to that point and looking at some of the other questions here, uh, one thing that we didn't touch on is patients with stage 3A melanoma. So there's kind of two forms of that. One is a stage 3A with just one or two cells in the sentinel node that makes them a stage 3A, or um, one that has a millimeter of tumor burden. Do you want to touch on that? <laughs> So the key to know here is you have to ask the pathologist to quantify how much of the lymph node has the melanoma in it. If it's less than a millimeter, then those patients would not have been included in any of these stage three studies that were being discussed. And so therefore, if you have like uh, the positive IHC, tiny minute cluster of cells, and that makes someone stage three A because they have a 1.2 millimeter non-ulcerated primer and that little speck of melanoma in the lymph node, that's not a patient I would offer adjuvant therapy because they would not have even been included in the adjuvant trials to show any kind of benefit. So what if the stage 3A is greater than a millimeter in the lymph node? That's a little bit of a debate as well. The benefit is less in stage 3A than it is in stage 3B and 3C. So I'm still hesitant in a lot of stage 3As, even with the millimeter of lymph node involvement. But without a millimeter of lymph node involvement, I would say definitely not. And so make sure your pathologist gives you that information. Yeah, one, if you look historically, one to two positive cells in a sentinel node is going to do very well. 
There is a question, are there any very high-risk patients with stage 3 melanoma for whom you would consider adjuvant dual checkpoint blockade? So I would still say no because of the d negative data for Checkmate 915, and that included high-risk stage 4 patients too, which was IPI at that lower dose plus nivolumab. Now you sometimes wonder, what about a second try of adjuvant? Let's say you see someone with stage 3 melanoma, you resect the nodes, then they go on adjuvant PD-1, a year later, they recur again in the nodes, and then they have another resection. Now is that the time you should give them kind of like a, a more aggressive adjuvant therapy? Maybe, but it's still a data-free zone. So I would say we don't have data to support adjuvant combination checkpoint blockade in any kind of adjuvant setting, except for stage 4 resected melanoma from the Immuned study. So stage 4 is a little bit of a different category. Then there's another one on um, role of neoadjuvant immunotherapy for in-transit nodal um, Recurrent melanoma, Charlotte, maybe I'll pitch that one to you. Okay. Um, so uh, I think it's an excellent scenario to try a neoadjuvant as well. It wasn't included, and transit lesions weren't really included in those trials, but we do know that, um, that there's efficacy of immune checkpoint, checkpoint inhibitors in, um, in transit disease. That paper has been published. And so I think it's a great way to start um, surgical resection of in-transit disease. Majority of those um, will um, recur, at least 80%. So um, it's a high-risk population, and I think it's a great area to try neoadjuvant. In. And then there's a question on timing of surgery when doing neoadjuvant therapy. And this, this has been kicked around quite a bit. I know there is a white paper uh, from the International Neoadjuvant Melanoma Consortium. There's a surgical white paper as well and a pathology white paper. So, you know, I would refer you to that. But did you want to comment on the, uh, the appropriate timing? I know, you know, some people like, you know, at Moffitt will go a little bit longer. You know, we generally do two to three doses, you know. Yeah. Well, we've been doing two doses, but Dr. Pasto actually has a trial now just looking at one dose. So we will yeah. operate pretty quickly. And I think it's important to know there's been multiple studies that have shown you don't have to wait after a checkpoint blockade. It's not like chemotherapy or Avastin where you have to wait for that to, you know, clear before you operate. You can operate right away. Um, you know, the only thing you need to make sure is the patient doesn't have an endocrinopathy that would otherwise uh, be a problem for you at the time of surgery. Right, and there was a paper published out of Penn showing that a single dose of pembrolizumab with, was associated with uh, major pathologic response in, what, 30% of patients mm -hmm. or so. Mm -hmm. It's pretty impressive. Mm -hmm. So I think, uh, you know, and then to that note, you know, how do you choose combined single agent with neoadjuvant? Um, you know, maybe I'll kick that to my memorial colleagues as well. Yeah, I just walk in the room <laughs> and make a gut decision. It's <laughs> as scientific or as unscientific as that. Because you can split hair in you know, the room yeah. with your fellow or trainee as you're talking about this and pulling up all these papers and looking at subset analyses and things like that. And then you go in there and you just start talking to somebody and then they kind of tell you what, who they're about and what's the right thing to do. I know that's not a very good answer from sitting up here and talking about this, but in the end of the day, that's what we always do anyways with our patients, right? We got to get to know them, what's important to them, who they are, what social support they have. And I think all that is really, really important because you have to do something that's safe, number one, and sometimes at least combination immune therapy can be tricky and you have to make sure people are well supported. So, But just to put some framework about it, yeah. do you think it's clear neoadjuvant ipinevo is a higher response rate than single-agent PD-1? In the, they have a higher path response rate, yes, Correct. for sure, for Correct. combination neoadjuvant. We don't know if that translates, right. So we definitely have a higher path. And so what would you do with a patient, let's say, with an, uh, a 
mm, let's say an acral melanoma with a nodal disease, would you be more likely to give that patient combination therapy as opposed to single agent in the neoadjuvant setting because you know they have a less you know, lower Yeah, response the short answer is absolutely yeah. yes. Okay, so if I had a patient that I knew had a cutaneous primary in a sun-exposed spot, for example, you know, maybe single-agent PD-1 could be good there because they may have a high TMB, maybe have that interferon gamma signature, although we don't test for that routinely, but that group does have a high response rate, which is nevo-monotherapy, neoadjuvant. But for the, the acral patients with nodal disease where you really think you might need something extra, neoadjuvant combination immune checkpoint blockade is kind of the standard, I would say. Here's a cool question. Mm-hmm. Um, would you consider neoadjuvant immunotherapy followed by BRF mechadjuvant after surgery in patients with nodal disease? I guess both people are looking at me from the left and the right. Okay, so what to do about switching? So I think the cool thing about neoadjuvant now that it's a standard to do based on the SWOG data is you get the pathology material out and you'll see what kind of result you have. So if you have a non-response pathologically, it tells you this patient's a very high risk of continuing to have a recurrence risk following surgery. So it is a reasonable thing to do to, to flip to something else. We don't have formal data for that, but... If I gave a couple doses of neoadjuvant epinevo and surgery was done and it was a huge hunk of viable melanoma with no treatment effect at all and the patient had a BRAF mutation, I could consider adjuvant BRAF-MAC for that patient. I will acknowledge there's no data to support that, but you know that's a little bit where the gestalt, you would hope to believe that BRAF-MAC could be helpful in that setting because we know that those patients have a high recurrence risk otherwise. All right. Well, I think at this point, uh, I think it's time to conclude. But, uh, you know, I knew Mike has to catch a plane, but Charlotte and I are around for at least a few more minutes, and we'd be happy to take more questions up at the front. And then uh, would love to thank all of you for your attendance, both those in person and those in the virtual camp. And uh, hope you learned something. We enjoyed having you here today. And thank you again to Peerview for hosting this session. Okay, thank you. This activity is certified by PVI. Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash NHA 860. This activity is supported through educational grants from Bristol Myers Squibb and Merck and Company Incorporated.